there. You're listening to the Grace in Real Time podcast. I'm your host, Paula Mazza, and together with my producer and husband, Jamie, we're exploring conversations about mental health, faith, and the importance of presenting our most honest and authentic selves when it comes to life in community. No tidy bows here, just real talk about real life in real time. This conversation is ongoing, and we are so glad you have chosen to be a part of it. So take a deep breath, settle in, and enjoy today's episode of Grace in Real Time. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Paula. <laughs> How's it going? It's going good. How are you doing? I am doing excellent. I am so excited. We got such great feedback from episode one. A lot of people listening out there, a lot of people offering encouragement and seem to be very excited about this conversation. Yeah, I was thinking we were checking out the numbers and over 100 downloads since we released episode one. It's just really encouraging to see that people are checking it out, listening to the show. You know, this is really important conversation. And I think people are starting to realize that we need to talk about this stuff. And I'm, I'm seeing it pop up all over as far as, you know, not just our conversation, but other people and places are talking about it. Just watching a football game today and they had a commercial about mental health awareness in the NFL. Yeah. Which uh, has been stigmatized for so long. Sure. So it's good to see. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah, I was listening back on the first episode and I was kind of cracking up because you hear evidence of what kind of a speaker I am. So you don't see this because we're not on video. But when I talk, I'm very animated. I'm very kinetic. I move a lot. And if you listen closely to the last episode, when I talk, you will hear swishing. Well, that's because I was wearing headphones with a microphone that hangs down And as I would move around, it was swishing on my clothes. So we were kind of cracking up a little bit after that, realizing, oh, well, there's evidence of what kind of a talker I am. Uh, Technical challenges. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But no big deal. We figured that out. And uh, hopefully you won't hear much of that swishing going forward. We'll see. (laughs) No promises. Well, this week we have another new guest and I am so excited to introduce Mark Freestead to you guys. Now, I've known Mark for years and years and years. He's been a great partner in ministry, preteen ministries. We share a heart and a passion for preteens. He himself has a story that I think, Jamie, you found a lot in common with just in his background and upbringing. Yeah, he shared how he grew up in a small town in North Dakota, and it just connected with me in the sense that I had a similar growing up and had to rely on a lot of imagination and and then dealing with depression in my life, and he's dealt with depression as well. I'm, I'm glad he opened up and shared about that and gave us some insight into how he's handled it and just talked freely about that. So that was, that was cool to hear. Yeah, and this conversation is so so dense with with heart and passion and a lot of great stuff that we actually had to cut it into two parts. So this is first half of the interview and then on our next episode, which is also being released today, so you have them back to back. We didn't want you to have to wait a whole month for the second half. So you will actually get two episodes of Grace in Real Time, part one and part two of the Mark Freestead interview. So let's get to it.
Well, hey, Mark Freestead. Hey, Paula. How's it going? Going good. How are you? <laughs> I am doing great. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you are here. I'm so glad to be here with built-in bookcases behind me. I know. And a very excited dog. You might, guys might hear our dog in the background. She's um, super excited that Mark's here. She's a fan. <laughs> Mark, I was digging up a little background on you. Actually, before I even got into that, I was trying to remember how long we've known each other. Mm. And I, <laughs> this was my strategy. Yeah. I, I checked my email because I'm one of those people that doesn't delete anything <laughs> even ever. Even the deleted items, yeah. I, yeah, and I won't even tell you how many unread messages I have. <laughs> <laughs> but the earliest email I could find, any guess? Well, I'm going to say like 2008. Close. Okay. Because that's when we enrolled in Bethel together. Ah, oh, right. But it was the year before. The earliest email I found was 2007. And well, it was when, remember when we did that Max 7 curriculum writing? Yeah. Well, I met you at an event where DJ Bosler was training the Diamond Method. Yes. That's the that's first right. time I met you. Right. And then I suppose we discovered that we both did preteen. Uh huh. So I came down to your midweek. Yes. Brought some boys. We did some songs. I remember that. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then yep. we and then we did. Um, we kind of organized a group of preteen leaders to get together and talk yeah. about preteen ministries mm -hmm. because Lunch, once a month at the yep. time there was next to nothing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's about as far back as I know. Tell <laughs> tell our listeners who you are and and what you do and and kind of give us a little background. Yeah. So I'm Mark Freestead, and I've been here in California since 2005, and working at North Coast Calvary Chapel, which is in Carlsbad. Right now, I oversee birth through eighth grade, um, but 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 an army of people uh, who work directly in those areas. So my day to day responsibilities are with seventh and eighth graders, but um, I've got a staff of people who work with me on that. Um, we've got a fourth or sixth grade director, and he's got a couple part-time people with him. And then our uh, awesome children's ministry staff uh, of about a dozen to 15 people um, coordinating all the age groups all around. So I did preteen for nine years, 2005 to 2014. And then it was time for a change and it was time to get married. And uh, so I settled into children's ministry role, overseeing birth through sixth. And then 2017 added tacked on seventh to eighth grade to that. Wow. So, wow. Amazing. And Amazing. you and I were Bethel classmates. And That's right. It took me a while, but I finally graduated in 2013. So, okay. A while is relative because is. I took a decade side tour. Yeah. <laughs> I just graduated with my master's. Um, what was it? 2020? 2019. No, it was 2020 because I, because remember we did the drive by celebration because oh, I could not right. go to my graduation. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was about one. a year ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, they always, they, you know, I remember at the beginning they told us that you have to finish within a certain amount of time or you're going to lose your credits from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure why they said that because I don't think they were serious about it. <laughs> and I think as long as you'd continue to pay tuition and made good progress, they didn't really care. So, right. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Well, you are not from California originally. No, I'm not. Where North, are you from? North Dakota, south of Canada. It's not the one with Mount Rushmore. Everybody always gets that wrong. <laughs> Most people have never been to North Dakota, would have no reason to go, but uh, that's home to me. And that's where everybody's at uh, in my family. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And you were there all through your adolescence? and Yep. Growing up years until I was 27, then I moved out to the East Coast. I was in Washington, D.C. area Wow. and worked in a nonprofit education uh, organization for four years and then did high school ministry for one year and then jumped coasts out here to the ah, West. Cool. And what, do you, I mean, what was it like to be a preteen in North Dakota? To be a preteen in North Dakota? Yeah. 
Oh, man. Well, I grew up in a small town. It was not small town by North Dakota standards because small is really small. But we had 7,000 people. We were probably the 12th largest city, if you will, in North Dakota. And I loved where I grew up because we had 100 kids in my graduating class. So in my elementary school, there were probably 50 kids, two elementaries in town. And you could do everything. You were needed to do everything. In order for the school to have a football team, you needed to play football. A cross-country team, you needed to run cross-country. So as a fourth grader, fifth grader, sixth grader, um, it was a pretty idyllic existence, honestly. Um, Everybody did everything. And you rode your bike around town. There was no threat of strangers. I mean, you just didn't worry about that back then. That was in the mid-80s. And then everything kind of changed, of course, as we, you know, got into the 90s. We were kind of on the tail end of the carefree 70s, you know. And, <laughs> right. And, you know, you rode bike. Nobody wore a helmet. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything like that. And uh, get into the, you know, town swimming pool for 50 cents a day and just spend the whole day there with your friends. And yeah, uh, loved where I grew up, um, loved the opportunities that we had. And then the older you get, you know, you realize it's a really small place and you kind of <laughs> want to broaden your horizons and be exposed to different things and different people and people of different backgrounds. So I kind of got the wanderlust. I got the the urge and the itch to go. Sure. But now as I raise my own kids, I mean, what I wouldn't give to have a community like that to raise yeah. them in. Yeah. And you have twins. I do. Yeah. Three-year-old twins. Uh, Three-year-old twins. Uh, Yep. Boy and girl. So great. And how's that going? Uh, It's going well. (laughs) Um, They're in preschool two days Uh, a week, which is a saving grace for my wife and a saving grace for me. (laughs) Um, But they're great. They're curious and they're um, gregarious and they just love new experiences and love learning, learning new things. And uh, so, yeah, we're having a lot of fun with that. One other thing that I don't know if you know, in 2000, let's see, what was it? 2017, I went to a children's pastors conference in Orlando and I hadn't been to one for years. And I actually was a little skittish. I was like, I I don't know if I want to go to this. And, uh, you know, children's ministry people are weird, right? They're so weird. Weird. Yeah. Preteen people are weird. I'm one of them. So I know. I thought you were going to say preteen are cool and the children's people are well, weird. But, but you awkward. are a children's person. That's right. As am I. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're all a little weird. Yeah, once That's you right. once you learn to embrace the weirdness, then you're in preteens, right? That's right. <laughs> but here's the thing is that I went to a pre-conference with Sean Sweet mm-hmm. and Patrick Snow, Drew Crisp, Greg Johnson, and Yancey. Oh. And in their present, I didn't know them. I had heard of them from you, but I didn't really know them. And um, as they were talking, they mentioned this mutual friend that they had, which was you. Hmm. And I was so excited. I was like, oh, wait, I know him. And so that was the conversation starter with Sean and and um, Patrick. And Patrick, just being how he is, asked then about my story and my passion for preteens. And so I got to share with him all my stuff, yeah. um, the things that I'm excited about. And they had been praying that morning for a woman who had the same kind of passion that they did to kind of join their merry band of preteen advocates. Mm-hmm. And so since then, I've been kind of palling around and traveling and speaking and helping with 456 and part of their leadership team. Yeah. But the conversation starter that got that connection going was you. I didn't even try, but I'm glad. I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> Look at you, winning on all fronts. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, 
Mark, I know you have quite a journey and a lot to share. So I I just want to kind of open up the mic um, and give you a chance to kind of talk about maybe how your journey with mental health began. And why don't you just share with us a little bit? Yeah. What's on your heart? Well, my mental health journey began the day that I was born. Hmm. And your mental health journey began the day that you were born. But the strange thing about it is until we go through a problem or a crisis with our own mental health, we don't always realize that there's a story to be told. Mm. And then we look back and we start to piece together these things and these instances in our lives. And we think about the way that we respond to things, which we all think that we're normal, right? Right. (laughs) How could anybody think differently than me? But it's when we reach a point of crisis that we say, oh, wait, something's off there. And how did I get to be this way? So then we become interested, hopefully, Hopefully we become curious about our own stories, piecing it together and trying to put together this coherent narrative. And I think that as more and more people are going through mental health struggles, um, anxiety and depression, especially, which is just off the charts, hopefully what it's producing for us on the other side is an an increased capacity for empathy for the struggles of other people. Mm. And that's kind of the paradox that's going on. Right. As more and more people fall into mental health difficulties, it has the potential to make us better people and softer in heart towards one another. I think about this as I raise my kids. You know, we read a lot of books about how to do it right, how to get it right, because the importance (laughs) of particularly empathizing with your kids, their early brain development, teaching them to empathize with one another Um, naming their feelings and talking about their emotions. And we really want to get it right with our kids because we know that this is so critical. And yet, and yet, if somehow I was able to raise completely well-adjusted, securely attached, mentally healthy uh, young kids who grew into young adults, that would be great. And I'm going to tell you, we've already blown it. We've already blown it on some press. <laughs> I was getting really excited. Yeah. It's like, wait, you but, did. You, but, you. <laughs> but that would be great. But what kind of resources would they be by the time they're mm-hmm. 21, 22, 23, mm-hmm. if they had it all together? Mm-hmm. Would they be the kind of people who are curious about the struggles of other people? Or would they be completely unable to relate? Yeah. Alien you see, and that's it. the difference between um, an innocent human being and the redeemed human being. Mm. So we all love innocence. And when we think about our kids, we want to keep them innocent and unstained and untouched by these things. But but that's not really the world that we live in, right? right? And so we don't wish for bad things to happen to our kids. And yet there's a redemptive journey that they're on and there's redemption on the other side of all these struggles so that if I can't truly keep my kids innocent forever, which I can't, my hope is that they will come through whatever struggles and they will experience the redeemed self, which is a really dang good story, even stronger than the innocent self. And that's Romans 8.20. I'm going to read from it here. Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. None of us would choose to go through a mental health struggle, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Absolutely. And so I think that's the hopeful piece, you know, as more and more of us struggle with anxiety, struggle with depression is like, no, no, there's a redemptive story that could be told here Uh and we can reach the other side, which is a better self, a more healthy self. And then we can look back at other people who are also struggling and have a heart for those people and an understanding of what they're going through. 
So my guess, Mark, is that you didn't just wake up one day with this great revelation that that this is something that maybe you have learned personally from yeah. maybe some trial and error. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I sent you a link to a blog post that I wrote mm-hmm. many years ago now, probably eight years ago, and it was in the wake of Matthew Warren's suicide. Right. He was one of Rick Warren's sons, mm-hmm. and he ended up taking his own life. And in that blog post, you know, I, I wrote about my own struggle with depression because I went through depression pretty bad starting in 2004. And at the time that I wrote that, I think I said that it's a struggle that I had that had never really left me. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've turned a corner in some other ways, and I, I'd be happy to get into that. But at the time when I wrote that piece, I said, I'm not sure that I see the redemptive purpose in anybody going through depression. Mm. And I would change that now. I think mm. that there is a redemptive purpose. I just think it's a really, really long recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of us don't stumble into depression in one day. When we look back and piece together the parts of our stories, we go, oh, yeah, this was coming for a long time. And maybe there was a precipitating event or crisis that pushed me over the edge, but this house was being built brick by brick by brick, and then I got there. But I think in the long term, you know, there is recovery from depression. It doesn't restore you to a state of innocence, but it does bring you to the point of redemption where you can look back and say, no, this was all for a purpose. Am I glad that I went through it? I'm not glad, but there were good things that came out of it. And it sure. made me a better, stronger person for having suffered in this way. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I love just holding on to the fact that God is in the business of restoration. So if we miss it, whatever it is, it's okay. Hope isn't lost because God is in the business of restoration. I have a lot of boats that I missed (laughs) throughout my life in parenting, in adulting, in um, just lifestyle choices. I have missed a lot of boats, (laughs) but God is in the business of restoration. And I'm so thankful for that. And that's part of the grace, right? That no matter what's going on all the time, there's always grace to be found, even when I don't feel it. I remember one time I was talking to um, my spiritual director and I told him that I felt really distant from God. And he was like, well, you know, why is that? I was like, well, I just, you know, I normally feel this kind of warm, fuzzy thing. And and he goes, oh, very sarcastically, like, oh, it's not warm and fuzzy. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Creator of the universe. Yeah. Sometimes it's just discipline to remember and to choose to believe that he is who he says he is and he's doing what he says he's doing, even when I don't feel the warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Um, And that's what propels me to want to acknowledge that there is grace around me, even if I don't see it or feel it. And that's those those aren't rosy glasses by any means. Yeah. Um, Someone recently asked me what my favorite name for Jesus was. And I said, Prince of Peace, because... I have felt, I mean, standing in the middle of the, the bleep storm <laughs> and claiming onto his peace. And, and when I was explaining this to somebody, they said, oh, yeah, like standing in the eye of the storm. And I was like, no, mm. nope, nope, nope. It is standing in the middle of the storm or whatever, to, even if the storm is in my head. Yeah. <laughs> um, but standing in the middle of that storm and choosing to believe and truly, genuinely putting all my eggs in the basket that God is who he says he is and he's doing what he says he's doing. Yeah. And, and that he throws multiple lifelines. And I think when you've been through depression, you get really hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was one of the contributing factors that you're going through depression because you're really, really hard on yourself. But God will continue to throw multiple lifelines because yeah. he does have your good in mind. He does desire your good. Sure. And 
you know, so if I hadn't been through my mental health struggles and wasn't wired the way that I was, maybe I would have been married 10 years earlier, Mm. but then I wouldn't have been married to my wife who I'm married to now. And we wouldn't have the kids that we have now. And so I think that we need not beat ourselves up that we uh, didn't get things 100% perfect on the first try. Like for God, there's always a second try and a third try and a fourth try. And he's going to bring you through. Banged up and bruised, maybe, but he's going to bring you through and he's going to heal it and redeem it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about who we're becoming, right? Along the way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a a similar story to yours. I certainly didn't grow up in North Dakota, but even here in East County, San Diego, it was kind of an idyllic experience growing up of, you know, you knew everybody. And like you said, you did everything. And uh, as I grew up and became an adult and got married and divorced... And then found Paula. There was a journey for me of discovering my fight with depression. And it's a lot of the similar similar things that you're talking about of trying to figure out how to navigate that. But uh, what I love about where I am now is that God is taking that story that has come before. And as long as I'm sharing it with other people, he's using that to touch people and to get them to talk about their own experiences. I think that's really important. So I wonder, Mark, as you've engaged in ministry, how have you kind of navigated your own battle with depression just as you kind of, as you've gone along? Yeah. I think that overwork can be a drug that you Mm -hmm. use to treat feelings of low self-worth or even anxiety. If I could just accomplish this one thing. And what work could be better work than working for God, right? Right. So if I'm achieving for God, then I have to be fulfilling my ultimate purpose. It's a trap. Yeah, it is a trap. So that can be very seductive for ministry workers to just think that they're going to bury their depression. They're going to mask their depression by just doing harder and doing better for God. And I think that that's an easy trap to fall into. I think that There's also a paradox in the kind of work that we do because we're all about drawing crowds, right? Mm, And that's how we measure ministry success. Lots of kids came and there were big smiles on their faces and they sang loudly and they made a lot of noise and were clearly having a lot of fun. And yet I can think of kids who did not and have not fit into the ministry programs that I've run. And many of them have anxiety. They have anxiety, social anxiety. They have anxiety in big settings. And It breaks my heart because I know what they need. What they need is they need small, they need calm, they need personal. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the ministry programs that we run are not wired for that at all. Right. Now we might do small groups, but they're really small groupings within the bigger group. Right. And it's 15 minutes of an hour and a half long program and and whatever. And so- And the extroverts win. And the extroverts win. Yeah. I mean, we totally reward kids for being out there and flamboyant and flashy and Mm -hmm. gregarious And um, we kind of look suspiciously at kids who are shy and hang back and, you know, what's wrong with them? (laughs) Are my jokes not funny enough? Are the songs not good enough? Like, (laughs) what's going on? And really, it's not that at all. It's just that we need to bring the personal touch. So I think it's been a good reminder for me is, you know, I've often reflected, I would not have thrived as a kid in the ministry environments that I now create. I just wouldn't have. I I would have been one of those kids who's like, mom and dad, I just want to sit with you in church. I don't Mm -hmm. want to go to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I have to have grace for those kids. And we've we've got to figure out ways to minister to them and their families, understanding that they may not take readily to the high energy environments that we all excel at. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that that gets me thinking um, 
in your own story. How early or how young were you when you first discovered, I mean, when you started feeling or like how far back can you track feelings of depression in your own story? Mm. I think I always had a really, really strong inferiority complex, Mm. really a strong feeling like I don't quite fit in or um, I don't deserve to fit in. Mm. And so if I was left out of something, maybe there was no malicious intent, but I would read that. I would internalize that and go, oh, see, I knew it. it. It's just me just the way that I am. And I played a lot alone as a kid. And some kids are like that. Yeah. You know, I, I could easily create worlds in my mind and I had a great imagination and it didn't bother me uh, necessarily to play alone. But um, then again, as you grow up and you kind of want to hang out with friends, but maybe you weren't part of the friendship group. I mean, there's all that nasty stuff that goes on in uh, early adolescence where people, kids exclude and draw lines and um, form new friendship groups. And I just sort of read that as, oh, see, it's me. The problem is me. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll never be a friend and you know, I won't be likable and stuff like that. So I, yeah, there were definitely elements of it there. But I think it, it really was more when I got into college and young adulthood that I just could see like I didn't have a well-rounded view of what it was to be a person, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a person uh-huh. was someone who worked really hard and accomplished a lot of things. And for me, it wasn't about making money, but it was just about doing important things, mm. doing, doing, doing all the mm-hmm. time. So mm-hmm. doing always came before being in my mind Yeah. until I crashed, just absolutely crashed with that. Yeah. And I had to rebuild Yeah. and I didn't rebuild smartly. Mm. And so- um, yeah, I, like the battle with depression would get better, but then it would get worse and it would get better and it would get worse. And I would compare it to like, you know, if you had a friend who was $50,000 in credit card debt and you had compassion on that person and you just said, all right, look, I have a windfall and I feel so bad for you because you can barely pay your bills and you're paying all this interest on your credit card. So let me let me just bless you and I'll just pay that off, Right. But then they turn around and they immediately go buy a new wardrobe and then rack up new credit card debt. I mean, it's good to be bailed out, but unless they change their habits, they're going to be right back where they were a year from then. And I think that's the same thing is true. When you go through an acute mental health crisis, you've got to make some adjustments. Uh Now, I want to say right here, I'm not blaming individuals who suffer anxiety and depression. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we live in contexts, Uh okay? Uh And to the extent that we can choose our contexts or affect our contexts, we need to do that because context and the people we surround ourselves with, it does contribute to the way that we process things. Yes, we are all born with different wiring and wiring and genetics play a role as well. But I'll say with my twins, we've got a boy and a girl and the boy is you know, just more drawn to me and the girl is just more drawn to mom. And my wife and I were re- remarking the other night, like, it's just crazy how they're twins and yet my son is so much more like me hmm. in the way that he handles frustration, hmm. in his sensitivity to being told no or being corrected in his behavior. And my daughter is so much more like my wife. Hmm. Now, is it just the wiring that they came out of the womb with? Maybe that that's possible, mm. but I think they are picking up so much on how I process and handle things, how my mm-hmm. wife processes and handles things. Yeah, yeah. And so I think from an early, early age, before we're even aware of what we're doing to our kids, we're transmitting this to our kids. Right. Here's how to handle stress. Here's how to handle disappointment. Here's sort of this inner narrative that you should adopt about 
how you ought to behave and what you ought to do. And it takes years to unravel where that came from. Mm -hmm. What did your parents do? What did they say or what did they not say, but they just communicated nonetheless that you've internalized this thing about how to be a person. Right. And so you've got to you've got to go back and you've got to piece that all together for yourself to really really understand um, how do I process things and how much of that is like okay and how much of it do I need to make an adjustment? Right. I like to think of it um, as learning as best I can who God has created me uniquely to be, and then doing what I need to do to come into alignment with that and agreeing with that. For example, our youngest daughter is bipolar. She she lives with bipolar disease or um, disorder. A lot of people would see that and think, oh, that's, you know, that's broken. She, you know, whatever. And that, I don't see that at all. And I don't think that's true. I actually uh-huh. think that's, that's a lie. <laughs> yeah. The truth is she moves through the world with a very unique way of experiencing life. And she was created in a way that's a gift yeah. to everybody who gets to experience her or, um, you know, takes time to see the world the way she does. And so my job as a parent and her job as a individual is to learn the skills and the tools and the you know the resources find the resources she needs to really come into agreement and alignment with this really fantastic way that God has created her. And I, I feel the same about me. I I struggle and I talk pretty freely about this. I struggle with general anxiety disorder, um, and that's come in different forms. And if I can see that as a gift and a unique way that God has created me. And then figure out what are the skills, what are the tools that I can use to um, really come into alignment with that that piece of this unique way that God has created me as as part of my holistic, yep. you know, discipleship and and faith walk. Then I don't know. There's something very centering and grounding about that. Yeah. Y- yes. And and we do that so that we can be a resource to other people. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. I can frame this sort of theologically, how I think about this, you know, healthy spirituality is bringing all of who we are before God mm-hmm. and then bringing all of who God is into our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I borrow that concept from Glenn Scorgy from, mm-hmm. from Bethel Seminary. And then this plays out in four spheres because all of life is relational. Right. Even when you're by yourself, you yes. are relating. Yes. God's there and you're relating to yourself. You're located. So Jesus yeah. said the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all mm-hmm. your heart, soul, mind, and strength mm-hmm. and to love your neighbor as you love yourself there's three venues right there. Mm-hmm. And then the Pharisee said, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on and tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. That it's not just the people whose names you know and the people you like and your right. close friends. It's right. everybody. Right. It's even strangers, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And so if you think of those four spheres, then it's it's your relationship with God, relationship with your neighbor, with yourself, and even with strangers. Mm-hmm. And presumably when Jesus said, you must love your neighbor as you love yourself, that doesn't mean it's okay to hate my neighbor if I hate myself. Right. I need to have a healthy self-regard, right? Yes. So I think that we are so out of relationship with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when we're out of relationship with ourselves, it limits our ability to be a resource to other mm-hmm. people. And I think that the pandemic revealed that so starkly, how out of relationship we were oh, with ourselves. Yeah. Sure. Because how many of us in January of 2020 would have said, how's life? Oh, life is so busy. What I wouldn't give for a slower <laughs> pace. And then mid-March hit 
and everything slammed on the brakes. Yep. And there you go. You had right. a slower pace. Right. And after about two or three weeks, some of us were climbing the walls uh-huh. because we were so out of relationship with ourselves. Right. We didn't know how to rest. We didn't know how to survive without professional sports. Mm-hmm. We didn't know how to survive without restaurants open. And we start clamoring. No, no, no. I want back to normal. And I don't know, somewhere near the end of May, a few things started opening up again. And we said, no, no, not 500 miles an hour, a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> and we just, we we don't know how to live with ourselves. And so we just keep clamoring for this pace of life that is just ultimately, I think, unsustainable. And I'm going to say this, I think that it's an open question whether we can easily be the kind of people God needs us to be in the types of societies that we have created for ourselves. Yeah, I'll sit right there in that question with you. I mean, I think it's a very American thing to construct a lifestyle and then say, now God, come and bless it. Right, right. And again, to go back to the ministry thing, like you can even be doing great things in ministry, but you can be doing them for the wrong reasons, or Mm -hmm. you can be overdoing it to a detriment, to the detriment of yourself, to your family. And God is not obligated to bless that. He's not. Right. And so, you know, I look at my young children and I look at what what I'm the culture that I'm raising them into, what it teaches them about overwork and that, oh, you know, the majority of high school students just suffer anxiety and depression. That's just the way that it is these days. And I'm like, the way that it is these days, mm. I don't know that if I can accept that as a dad. Right. Right. But the culture right. tells me I have to. There's just nothing you can do about it. That's just what they have to do to succeed. I mean, how backwards is that? Yeah, it's right? a little backwards. And, and the end result of that is, is we are just out of relationship with ourselves. And if I'm not in right relationship with myself, if I don't have shalom in that relationship with myself and relationship with my creator, I don't have anything left to give. That's right. If you're not loving yourself, how could you possibly love your neighbor? You can't. You can't. And we know that, right? We just get all, we get maxed out and we come home from a day of overwork at work and we're responsible for too much and too many things. And all we want to do is veg in front of Netflix right? and overeat or overdrink or overdo it or over whatever, because mm-hmm. we just are so exhausted. We have nothing left to give anybody else. Right. And how, how true is that for ministry leaders? Yeah. Who so often the the lines are blurry right. when it comes to ministry and balancing that and life in general and and um, family and all of that. You know, right. you were and, talking and, and about some people use that as an excuse, right? So therefore, this is why I'm not going to care about other people because it's all I can do to keep me and my family on track. But right. see, I don't think that's what the Bible is teaching at all. I think the Bible is saying like everything in balance, mm-hmm. right? And so, yes, we are expected to be a resource for our neighbors, even the people who we don't know, even the people who we don't like. And so therefore, as Christians, we have to live prophetically. And when I say prophetically, I mean, we live by shining example among our neighbors that we are in relationship, right relationship with ourselves, with our God, with our families. And I mean, I'll be the first to confess, like other than the fact that I leave and go to work at a church all day long, and I read my Bible at home in private, you know, what is there about me and my lifestyle that is markedly different from right. the neighbors up and down the street? Right. And it shouldn't be that way. We right. should live prophetic existences so that people see it and they're drawn to it. Mm-hmm. 
But we as Christians in the culture, we just have, we're, we're just so sucked in to being like, well, that's just the way it is. I just got to be over busy. I got to have my device on all the time and I can't right. miss an email. I'm falling behind. Right. I've been experimenting with, uh, you'll like this. I've been experimenting with, is it possible for me to spend five minutes in silence per hour during a weekday? Ooh, per hour? Yeah. And so Whoa. why not, right? Why not, instead of scheduling meetings for 60 minutes, because you get near the end of a meeting and you're just you know, you're just rehashing or wasting time. Why not just say, I've got a 50 minute window for you. And then I've got to go away before my next meeting. And you take a couple minutes to settle down. You spend five minutes in silence and then you come out of it and you go on to your next thing, right? You guys, I cannot tell you how many days it is not that I cannot spend the five minutes. It's that I will not spend the five minutes (laughs) because five minutes is, oh, I could clear these extra emails. Oh, I could get this extra thing done. Oh, 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 I could arrange this thing. And pretty soon by the end of the day, like maybe I've hit it on my very best day, like maybe three times in an eight hour work day. That that sounds like a win. (laughs) It's not though, it's not. The excuses that we make not to attend to ourselves and our relationship with God, again, again, so that we can be a resource to other people. So we just run on fumes because that's what the culture does. Right. Well, friends, that was part one of our two-part interview of Mark Freestead. And I'd love that last line. I don't love it, but I relate to it that we are just running on fumes because that's what our culture does. Jamie, I wonder what you think about when you hear that phrase, running on fumes. Well, we all do it, don't we? Even coming out of the pandemic and COVID, I mean, we're still kind of in it, but you know, it's just like Mark was saying, we had such busy lives and uh, all of us, right? We're going crazy project to project, doing whatever, you know, just constantly on the go. And then suddenly everything stopped and we all experienced this. We all had to stay home. Uh We all had to relate to our families who we were stuck with at home. (laughs) Oh, these people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there's things we couldn't do. Right. And, you know, before we would have said, oh, I just wish I could have all this downtime and just be able to do the things I can do. And or we spend en- more time with my family. Right. Yeah. And we enjoyed that for probably a month or two. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then we got tired of it. And then we kind of pined for the days of, oh, I wish we could go back to quote unquote normal. <laughs> but now that things are starting to get back to that. And offices are opening up, businesses are opening up, we're being able to go to concerts and to sporting events and all this. How many of us are saying, oh, I don't want this to change? Oh, right. I mean, I actually found re-entry back into work and back into, you know, some rhythms and patterns that were before. I found that re-entry harder than the abrupt stop to begin with because I didn't want to let go of some of that space that we had found. And, and I still, to this day, am fighting to maintain some of that space. One of the things Mark talked about was that practice that he's trying out of five minutes of silence. In Which every is unrealistic. I, know, I well, mean, he even admitted it. Yeah, it's unrealistic. <laughs> but it did prompt in me a new practice that I hadn't done before, where I have an alarm on my phone that is set to go off several times a day. And a verse pops up that I have really related to in the last month or so, and it's a part of Psalm 116, and it says, Return to rest, O my soul. 
because the Lord has been good to you. And for me, that no matter what is going on, just taking that moment to stop and breathe and even even just for a few seconds returning to a place of rest and even examining what is what has the time been like since the last time I stopped and examined and took a deep breath and you know gave a pause and that's been really both helpful and insightful for me into what what is filling up my days right now and where's there more space where's where's an opportunity for more space but also, what is the daily minimum requirement for me, for the care and keeping of me and the care and keeping of my loved ones? Yeah, I, I think about what is it that we can take from this last year and a half mm-hmm. that we have learned? Right. What if we learned that we can take with us going forward? Yeah. Because to go back to just what it, what life, the crazy pace of life was before we had to slow down, we were forced to slow down, has led to us all living with anxiety and depression. Right. And in different ways, yeah. And just acting like that's the norm and that's just what we have to do. Like Mark was saying, that's just what we have to do to get through. So we just accept it. (laughs) And and that's what we're putting on our kids. Right. It's like, Mm. you know, they just have to do this. That's just what they have to do to get through life and to get good grades and to go to the college they want and blah, 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 blah. You got to fit it it all in. It goes on and on. And I worry about our kids these days because, you know, now their schools are opening up and they're going back. I see kids just immediately jumping in and going full max schedule more than they can handle. And I'm like, man, this is going to lead to some burnout really quick. Yeah. And I worry about that. Yeah. And so I think it's important that we take those moments and maybe find a practice. It might be yoga. Mm -hmm. It might be breathing exercises. Sure. It might be uh, reading a book. It might even be taking a nap. It might be taking a nap, (laughs) but incorporating those into our lives. And it may be hard at first. Yeah. It may be like Mark was saying, I'm making it a goal. Right. To stop for five minutes every hour. Yeah. And he said, maybe I did it three times one day. Right. But if he keeps trying, maybe he's going to do it more times a day. Right. And and to be clear, this is not a should that we should place on ourselves, right? right. This is This is not a should. This is just a, maybe there's an opportunity to live life a little bit differently that might shape us in a way that makes us more available to ourselves to stay in relationship with ourselves for the sake of being in relationship with others. Yeah, I like what Mark said about overwork is a drug. Sure. And when you think about ministry work, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of people who are in ministry will say, well, I am doing things that are for God. I'm doing things that are good for other people. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't I just keep doing it and maxing myself out and it's seductive, right? <laughs> well, not only that, but there's a lot of gray area. If I spend my day in the office doing ministry stuff from there, and then I go to the store and I bump into someone uh, who is 
part of our church or someone I've been trying to reach out to. And now all of a sudden I'm doing ministry in the middle of our local grocery store. And then I come home and I receive a phone call from somebody who's worried or concerned or has some questions or whatever. And now I'm doing ministry at home on the phone. And then, you know, I'm go showing up to a ball game or showing up to somebody's event. And now I'm doing, you know, there's a lot of gray there that makes it tricky to put boundaries on because we want to be available, right? right? But how how available? And, th- and I think this is the thing that Mark really was impressing on me. The thing that I really heard was that how available can we really be if we aren't tending to our own souls? If we aren't, you know, if we if we are so focused, outward focused, that we lose relationship with ourselves, we find ourselves out of relationship with ourselves, then how can we possibly extend that same kind of relationship or be, you know, be in a true, deep, um, authentic relationship with others when we've lost touch with ourselves? Yeah, exactly. If you're not taking care of your own health, then you can't really relate or help other people Yeah, uh, effectively. Just to be clear, that doesn't mean that we have to have everything. I have to have all my stuff wrapped up in a tidy bow and, you know, fixed. Well, that's not going to happen. What I get to do and what you get to do and what our listeners get to do is be real, be authentic. Don't try to sweep stuff under the rug. Let's be real about what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, and make sure that from that space of being real, we are being real with each other. Yeah. One of the other things that I liked about what Mark brought out was that for those of us who have gone through mental health crises and have come out the other side of it, mm-hmm. it's important for us to share our stories with other people. Mm. And this is what we're doing this podcast for, right? Yeah. Is to break down the barriers, to remove the stigma, to make discussions about mental health normal. Right. We normalize them. We remove the barriers so that people feel free to say, I need help. I need to talk to somebody instead of feeling like there's something wrong with me. I need to deal with it myself. I'm embarrassed to tell people about it. I think that it's both of our goals to mm-hmm. make people feel comfortable with saying, I'm not right. I need help. I need to figure this out. I need someone to talk to you about it. And so if that's you, reach out to us. Yeah. PreteenMentalHealth.com. Send us an email. We'll be happy to connect you with resources. Yeah, absolutely. And please know that we sit here with personal experiences that we will share over time. You will hear more and more about our stories. Well, friends, this was the first half of the interview. And I really hope that you listen to the second half as well. There is so much more to discuss. And that episode is available. It is available to you now, right, Jamie? Yep. It's out there and available for everybody to listen to grace in real time. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Listening to the Grace in Real Time podcast with your host, Paula Mazza. If you'd like to get in touch with Paula, 
send an email to paula at preteenmentalhealth.com. For more information on the Preteen Mental Health Initiative, the Grace in Real Time podcast, and to get connected to mental health resources, please visit our website, preteenmentalhealth.com.